Well, we want to look at the Word of God for a little time this morning, and uh, uh, Dave Maddox has asked me if I would take three Mondays, I think, and talk about the subject of heaven. And I, I love to talk about heaven. So that's what we're going to do. I'm under assignment to do this, and I, I think it's going to be an exciting study. This morning going to be a little bit uh, different because we're going to talk about where heaven is, but uh, I think you're going to respond and, and enjoy this. You know, when I was a kid growing up, we used to sing a lot of songs about heaven. Pretty typically, uh, we had all kinds of choruses about heaven, all kinds of hymns about heaven. And, and if, I, if I'm right in my assessment of the contemporary church scene, very, very few songs, if any, that I know of have been written in a contemporary mode that have anything to do with heaven. I can't think of any new song, new tune that has been written recently by Christians that has anything to do with heaven. We don't sing about heaven anymore. We don't even sing the old songs about heaven. Like we used to sing them. And there's a reason for that. It's because we live in a society of materialism and we live in a society of instant gratification. The church has gotten much more worldly. It reminds me of a pastor who said to his congregation, how many of you are interested in going to heaven? And only uh, a few hands went up. And afterwards he said to a few people, why didn't you raise your hand? And they responded by saying, well, we thought you were getting a group to go right away. And that's, that's basically a, a sort of mentality that we have in our society, even in the church. I'm, I'm interested in heaven when I die. It'll be nice to know that after I've died, I'll land there. But I certainly am not interested in leaving soon. Um, typically, young people say, I've got to live my life, man. I, I don't want to go to heaven yet. Please, Jesus, don't come. I haven't gotten married yet. Uh, you know, and I've been waiting so long for all that stuff. If the rapture happens before my wedding, I'm going to be really messed up. Uh, we have this strange uh, feeling that whatever is here in this life somehow is more fulfilling, more satisfying, more gratifying, and more fun, and more pleasure than heaven, which is bizarre and probably the result of the fact that, that we live in a church that is preoccupied with the world, material things, and we're sort of all victimized by the health, wealth, instant gratification, prosperity mentality that has become so very popular. So what I'd like to do is kind of take us out of our contemporary sort of warped Christian culture that sees this world as the beginning and the end of everything and, and spends most of its time trying to raise our comfort level in this life rather than look at the life to come and, and try to transport you a little bit, if I can, to heaven. And I, I really feel this is a, a very, very vital study. And you say, why are you doing it? Because I believe that without a proper perspective on heaven, you're not going to understand how to live the Christian life. You're not going to have the right set of values and standards as you live your life. The church in America does not have heaven on its mind. It has earth on its mind. It is not anticipating heavenly comfort. It wants earthly comfort. It is not looking forward to heavenly wealth. It wants earthly wealth. It does not look forward to the day when all of its problems are solved in glory. It wants all of its problems solved now, here in time. It is consumed with selfish indulgence in this world and wants to be successful, comfortable, and all of that right now. And yet, when you stop to think about it, everything that is important to us is in heaven. Our Father is there. Our Savior is there. Our brothers and sisters are there. The prophets are there. The apostles are there. Our name is there. Our life is there. Our inheritance is there. Our citizenship is there. Our reward is there. Our master is there. Our treasure is there. And on and on it goes. And heaven is really our home. We're only pilgrims. We're passing through on our way to heaven. We are not at all home here. This is not our dwelling place. 
As the Bible says, we look for a city whose builder and maker is God. We are temporary passing through this veil of tears. Everything precious to us is in heaven. Everything valuable to us is in heaven. And we need to have a proper perspective on heaven. And so we're going to endeavor to do that as we look together to the Word of God. Now, the first thing that we want to talk about, and we could talk about a lot of things, is where is heaven? All right? Where is it? Uh, to do the best we can to assess this, uh, we're going to go to the Scripture and we're going to kind of expand on that. Uh, first of all, let me just mention that the word heaven is referred to in Scripture by, about 550 times. So it's a major theme of Scripture. The Old Testament word, Hebrew word, samayim, means the heights, the, the elevated place. The New Testament word, interestingly enough, is Uranus, from which the planet Uranus gets its name. And the word Uranus simply means that which is elevated, that which is high, that which is lifted up. The heaven is the lifted up place, the high place, the lofty place. The Bible also tells us there are three heavens. You remember the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, he said, I was caught up to the third heaven. Well, let me tell you what the three are. First, the atmospheric heaven. That's the space immediately above the earth. That's the air we breathe. That goes for about 20 miles. And I think I'm right when I say scientists call that the troposphere. 20 miles up above earth, that's the, that's the atmospheric heaven. Then you have beyond the atmospheric heaven, the stratospheric heaven. This is the space occupied by stars and moons and planets and things like that. That's the next level of space. And the third would be the divine heaven, the abode of God, the abode of the holy angels, the redeemed saints of all the ages. And you can make more scientific divisions, but in Paul's terminology, the third heaven went beyond the atmosphere, beyond the stratosphere, and into the very presence of God. Now, what we want to talk about is not the atmosphere and not the stratosphere, but the abode of God, the place where God is. Now, the first question simply to ask is where is heaven where is it is it a place I mean is it like Los Angeles I mean in the sense that Los Angeles is a place we hope it's not like Los Angeles is it like Japan is it is it like uh, France is it like Argentina I mean is it some place that has borders and boundaries and identifiable characteristics what is it like? Does it have a longitude and a latitude? Uh, can we make a map of it? Can we find it in uh, somehow uh, the, the, the end of space if we can go far enough? Can it be charted? Is it a place? And if it is, then where is it? Well, the answer to that question is very simple. I'll tell you now exactly where heaven is. It is up. It's up. That's where it is. Say, so how do you know that? Paul says he was caught, what? Up into the third heaven. See, I told you it was up. Paul reminded us that when Jesus came to earth, he descended. So if he came out of heaven and descended, heaven must be up. The angels told the earthly disciples that Jesus had been taken up into heaven, Acts 1.11. When the Lord returns, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, He will come down from heaven. When the church is raptured, it will be caught up. When God contemplates His creatures, it says in Psalm 53.2, He looks down, and when man contemplates God, He what? He looks up. 
When John was about to be given a vision of heaven, he was invited to come up, Revelation 4.1. The new Jerusalem, when ready to become the eternal dwelling place of the saints, will come down from heaven. So heaven is up. It's up. Now, modern science has, has added some divisions to the simple three heavens that I mentioned to you earlier. There's the troposphere that goes up about 20 miles. There's a stratosphere that's from 20 to 30 miles. There's a mesosphere that's from 30 to 50 miles. There's the ionosphere that's from 50 to 300 miles. There's the exosphere, 300 to 20,000 miles. And there's the uh, infinite sphere after that. So the third heaven is beyond all of that. It's not only up, it's way up. Pioneer One, in the fall of 1958, went 70,000 miles into space, and it wasn't there yet. Soviet Lunik One, orbiting the sun in 1959, sent back observations from 373,000 miles up, and heaven wasn't there. The U.S. Pioneer 4 went to 407,000 miles up, and others have been bent on going further, but none of them have reached the third heaven. How far is it? Well, let's think about it. The moon is 211,463 miles up. You could walk to it in 27 years. It's not that far if you walk 24 miles a day. But you wouldn't be in heaven. A ray of light reaches the moon in 1.5 seconds, going 186,000 miles per second. If we could go at that speed, we could get to Mercury in 4.5 minutes. It's only 50 million miles away. We could get to Mars in 4 minutes, 21 seconds. It's only 34 million miles away. We could get to Saturn in, in 1 hour and 11 seconds. Uranus is 1.5 billion miles away. Neptune is 3 billion miles away. Pluto is billions more and would take even longer. But even when we got there, we still wouldn't be in heaven. It's still up. In fact, we wouldn't be off our front porch. Alpha Centauri, the star, is 20 billion miles. The North Star is 400 billion miles. Betelgeuse is 880 quadrillion miles. And by the way, you know how big it is. It's got a 200 million mile diameter. And we're still not even out of our galaxy. And there are billions of galaxies beyond our galaxy. Now, let me just take you a little deeper into the profundity of all of this. Our Earth is one of nine planets revolving around the sun. The Earth has a diameter of 8,000 miles. Its mass is estimated to be six septillion, six hundred sextillion tons. The distance from the earth to the moon, as I said, is about 250,000 miles. The distance to the sun is 93 million miles. The sun has a diameter of 866,500 miles and a mass 330,000 times that of the earth. The sun, and here the mind begins to stagger at such enormous distances and innumerable masses, the sun is only one star in a galaxy of a hundred billion other stars. A galaxy that has a mass of 70 billion times that of the sun. Distances become so great that you find it cumbersome to even use the measure of a mile, so you have to come up with a light year, and that means light traveling at the speed of 186,000 miles per second, or 11,160,000 miles in one minute. 
The sun, we say, then is eight light years away. A light year, then, means the distance light will travel in one year, or 5,880,000,000 miles. Our solar system has a diameter of 660 light minutes, but the galaxy of which it is very small has a diameter of 100,000 light years. And on and on it goes. It's mind-boggling. And when you've gone through all of that stuff, you're not even near heaven. It's up, but it's very far up. And yet what is astounding and shocking is when Jesus comes, we get there how fast? How fast? The twinkling of an eye. You say, how fast is that? That's fast. That's not the blink of an eye. That's the twinkling. That's different. The blink is too slow. As fast as you can blink, you're too slow. The twinkling is how fast light reflects off your pupil. That's how fast we'll traverse infinite space to occupy the third heaven. You talk about fast, that's fast. Heaven is up. Heaven is big. It's so big, are you ready for this? It encircles the universe. It encircles the universe. This is mind-boggling. Jeremiah 23 says... And I think it's about verse 24. Find it here. Can a man hide himself in hiding places? So I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do not I fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. Listen to this. You want to know how big heaven is? Heaven is as big as God. God fills it with his immense and unlimited presence. Heaven is up, it is way up, it is immeasurably up, it is beyond all the immeasurable billions and trillions of miles and light years into space. It is so big, it encircles the infinite universe, and it is as big as God so that it encompasses all of his eternal presence. This is unbelievable. In fact, I guess we could conclude that heaven is infinite. It has no end. It is beyond the created world and extends as far as the infinite, unending presence of eternal God. Now, heaven has a capital city. What's the capital city of heaven? What is it? It's the New Jerusalem. It's the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is like a massive, self-contained planet. That exists within heaven. Now I want to ask a second question. So what we conclude, where is heaven? It's up, way up. The second question we want to ask this morning is what is heaven like? What is it like? I want you to look at one description that I think is really fascinating. Ezekiel chapter 1. Turn in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 1 and listen to Ezekiel trying to describe heaven. Now, if you're thinking about, you know, preaching a series on Ezekiel 1 and doing an exposition of this chapter, uh, you're going to find yourself immensely frustrated because it's almost inconceivable to sort out the things that Ezekiel says. But listen to his description of heaven. I think it's kind of fascinating. Ezekiel 1, 4. And I looked, and behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. So he sees a storm, he sees a wind, a a cloud of fire flashing, bright light, 
glowing metal, the midst of a fire. And he says, within it were figures resembling four living beings. And this was the appearance. They had human form. They had four faces, four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like calves' hooves. They gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on four sides were human hands. Their faces and wings of the four of them. Their wings touched one another. Their faces didn't turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. And he's describing some indescribable angelic beings. Each went straight forward wherever their spirit was about to go they would go without turning as they went in the midst of the living beings there was something that looked like burning coals of fire like torches darting back and forth among the living beings the fire was bright the lightning was flashing from the fire the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning and I looked and at, the, at the living beings behold there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them the appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel all four of them had the same form their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another whenever they moved they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved as for their rims they were lofty and awesome and the rims of all four were full of eyes round about these are wheels he's describing wheels within wheels within wheels the living beings move, the wheels move with them. The, wherever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. The wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Wherever they went, these went. Whenever those stood still, these stood still. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels clo- rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living beings was something like an expanse. Like the awesome gleam of crystal extending over their heads, under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, each toward the other. Each one had two wings covering their body on the one side and on the other. I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, the sound of a tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. There came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now, above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli, which is a brilliant blue stone in appearance. And on that, which resembled a throne high up, was a figure with the appearance of a man. And then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire and there was a radiance about him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. What is all that? Absolutely indescribable. He sees angelic beings, flashing lights, wheels with eyes spinning and setting off scatterings of light, an expanse and a throne and God. And all of this is his view of heaven. Fantastic, confusing, a blazing light splashing off polished jewels like colored wheels of light all mingled with holy angels. The brilliance of a blinding rainbow and all of that. It's a vision, and you really can't divide it all down and give meaning to every part. It's indescribable, absolutely indescribable. Perhaps a more comprehensible description is given in Revelation chapter 4, and it'll tell us what heaven is like. Let's look at it, Revelation 4, then we'll look at one other passage. Here is an understandable description of heaven. 
The center of heaven, Ezekiel saw, is the throne of God. And he saw God's presence there, and that certainly is the center of heaven. The center of heaven is God's throne. Let's see what we find in Revelation 4. After these things I looked, John says, in a vision, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit. In other words, this is a vision. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, one sitting on the throne. Now he's looking at heaven, and he's looking at the throne, which is the focus of heaven. And now he launches into a description of it. Verse 3. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. Jasper was a beautiful stone of various colors, semi-opaque, greenish in color. Sardius was a red stone. And by the way, these two stones are the first and last of the 12 stones on the breastplate of the high priest in Exodus 28. Uh, They represent the tribes of Reuben, the first tribe, and also the tribe Benjamin, the last tribe. In addition, he sees this enormous rainbow around the throne, which was colored like an emerald. And this is the glory and the beauty of the vision. Uh, Verse 4, he says, uh, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders, which are probably representatives of the church. Uh, Some think they would be angels, but nowhere else in Scripture are angels ever called elders. More likely they are representatives of the church, clothed in white garments, also typically representative of the redeemed church. Golden crowns on their head, also something that was promised uh, to those in the church, that they would receive a crown uh, when they ascend into the presence of God. Then in verse 5, he goes on to describe the throne. The throne was yielding flashes of lightning. Sounds and peals of thunder, a lot of noise, a lot of flashing lightning. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. What you need to know there is there aren't seven holy spirits, but there is the sevenfold spirit of God. Go back to Isaiah 11, verses 2 and 3. You'll read the sevenfold spirit of God. In other words, there are seven responsibilities the spirit has. So he saw the sevenfold holy spirit. He sees the throne, the lightning, the thunder, the flashing, the whole thing. Very much like Ezekiel's perspective. Then verse 6, before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now here's the idea. The throne is sitting on a base, and this massive base is glistening crystal reflecting the glory of the throne. So the throne is full of this refracted light, these jewels, and it bounces off the crystal base. Again, the flashing light. Uh, Ezekiel, you remember in verse 22, chapter 1, described the floor on which the throne of God rests as the color of awesome, dazzling crystal. So the parallel here is exact. Heaven is not a place of shadows. Heaven is not a place of mists. There are no shadows. There are no mists. There are no dark places, just splendorous light flashing in every direction. And then in verse 6... He says there were four living creatures, very much again like Ezekiel's vision. They would be angels, probably cherubim, at the center of heaven, at the throne of God. The holy angels are there. And so there is this description of heaven, in at least of the throne of heaven in Revelation chapter 4. Now let's go a step further. Go to Revelation 21. And here we get a little bit more of the description of heaven. All of this I want us... To understand is leading to some very practical implications for us, for our lives. 
verse 1 of chapter 21 is a description of the new heaven and the new earth. First heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea, he says, and then launches into a discussion of the capital city of eternal heaven. This is the fullest and clearest description. It comes after the battle of Armageddon is complete. It comes after the great white throne judgment. It comes after the Lord has destroyed the world as Peter predicted he would in a renovation of fire. This, uh, this leads to the third creation. The first creation was spoiled by the fall and destroyed in the flood. The second creation comes after the flood or the second earth. The first earth was destroyed in the flood. The second earth we now live in. The third earth and the final heaven is here described after this one has been purged and created brand new. And you know Peter says it'll it'll be destroyed with nuclear power, fervent heat. Second Peter chapter 3. The earth is going to be ultimately destroyed with fervent heat. The whole universe will disintegrate this is not hard to believe by the way um, the structure of the earth should lead us to believe it'll be destroyed by fire the earth is basically a fireball with a crust on it the whole heart of the earth is molten fire it's 25,000 I think miles 24 something in circumference and in the middle is molten fire every once in a while the crust breaks and the fire comes out we call it a volcano so the heart of the earth is molten fire and of course we all know about the tremendous nuclear power of the tiny atom that surrounds us in the fullness of the universe the whole thing could explode in a holocaust and apparently that's exactly what Peter describes in second Peter chapter 3 and then comes a new heaven and a new earth this marvelous new place that God is going to create and we could take a lot of time to talk about that but we, we don't have that time so let me look at just this first verse and make one comment chapter 21 verse 1 he says there's no longer any sea now what does that mean well there's an interesting note there the Jews were not sailors they were never sailors in fact for the most part they feared the sea if you study Jewish history you find that out that's why when Jesus said you'd be better off to have a millstone hanged around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea he said something that was as frightening as anything that could be said to a Jew because they feared the sea the sea spoke about turbulence the sea spoke about violence the sea spoke about separation mystery restlessness and uh, it also indicated national boundaries and so he says there will be none of this anymore, no national boundaries, no more sea, no more separation, no more turbulence, no more violence, no more restlessness, nothing to fear. And then he says, I want you to look at the capital city, and this is absolutely fascinating. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. There are three Jerusalems. The historical Jerusalem, which still exists, the millennial Jerusalem, which will exist during the thousand-year kingdom of Christ on earth, in which Jesus will reign on the throne and rule, and the eternal Jerusalem, the capital of heaven. And it comes down, he says, it comes down like a bride adorned for her husband. Why does he say that? Because nothing in their culture was as adorned as a bride. And so this is to indicate the splendor and the beauty and, of course, the fact that the church is the bride and dwells in that city. In fact, probably the New Jerusalem is where the marriage supper of the Lamb will take place. 
And so down comes this incredible, magnificent, and beautiful city out of heaven. It moves down and it occupies the central place in the new heaven and the new earth. And that means most scholars think it comes down and somehow hovers over the new earth in the midst of the eternal and final heavens. Now, to look a little more deeply into its description, we need to go down a little bit in the chapter and we'll find more about it. Go down to verse 10, 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now you're going to get a look at the capital city of heaven, God's masterpiece. Verse 11. The, the most salient fact about this city is that it has the glory of God. It is the dwelling place of God's glory. Now do you remember, the glory of God was seen as light, wasn't it? Called the Shekinah. When Moses saw the glory of God, it was a brilliant, blazing light. Uh, when the glory of God came down into the tabernacle in Exodus, it was a brilliant light, Exodus chapter 40. Uh, when the glory of God came up in the, in the sky, it was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud uh, of light by day, and it led them. The glory of God is seen as that, in, that glorious emanating light which reflects God's majesty. And that basically is what the capital city of heaven will do. It is a great refractory for the glory of God to shine. Where God will manifest himself. In Isaiah 60, verse 19, it says, The sun shall be no more the light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Isaiah 60:19. So that the light of eternal heaven and the light coming out of the capital city, Jerusalem, will be the light of the glory of God. No more sun and no more stars and no more planet, just the glory of the light of God. All over the whole of the infinite, eternal heaven and eternal earth. Further, he describes it. He says it'll have the glory of God and the brilliance is like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Uh, this is the Hebrew equivalent, by the way, to a diamond. According to Exodus 28, it's translated diamond. The city is going to be like one huge diamond. It will flash this brilliant crystal diamond light through the whole universe. I mean, just think about it. The endless universe, now perfectly purged of all iniquity, all darkness is gone because at the very core of it is the glory of God coming through the new Jerusalem, this diamond, and splattering to the endless edges of eternal heaven. It's design. Notice verse 12. He gets a little architectural here. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates were 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Now, the city has perfect symmetry. It has 12 gates in the wall and 12 angels standing by each gate, and has on each gate the name of one of the tribes of Israel. Why is the wall there? What do you need a wall for? Well, a wall was a symbol of security. All ancient cities had a wall, and it spoke of safety and security. And it was God's way of describing the new Jerusalem as a safe, impregnable, secure place. Twelve is a key number. There are twelve gates, twelve angels, twelve tribes, twelve foundations, twelve apostles, twelve pearls, twelve kinds of fruit, twelve thousand furlongs, and twelve by twelve. 
So this is some heavenly number. It indicates that God is building a city that is perfectly symmetrical. Verse 13. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now remember, we're going to have glorified bodies. I don't know what kind of gates are going to be, but we're going to be going in and out of these things. Then he says in verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones. It, it didn't have twelve foundations made of stone. It had twelve foundation stones, huge jewels. On them the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And then verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Now he's going to get more detailed. Uh, this uh, angel is going to take a reed, which would be about a 10-foot measuring standard, and he's going to measure the city. Verse 16, the city is laid out as a square. Again, it's perfectly symmetrical in order that it might refract the glory of God equally to every part of the eternal heavens. And he says he measures it out. It is square, verse 16. The length is as great as the width. He measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. At length and width and height are all equal. It's a cube. 1,500 miles. All diamond with other jewels that act as 12 foundations. With gates, listen to this, that aren't made of pearl. But every gate is one pearl. One huge, massive pearl. Each of those gates is posted with an angel, an honor guard, with the name of the tribe of Israel, showing God's eternal covenant relationship with his people, and so forth. The symmetry is true to the design in the mind of God. It's just really mind-boggling when you think about this. 1,500 miles in each dimension. Uh, there was an architect, an Australian engineer by the name of Thomas, T-A-M-M-A-S, and um, he did some calculations about this measurement. He calculated that the city would be 2,250,000 square miles based upon the 1,500 miles cubed. 2,250,000 square miles. To put it in perspective, London is 140 square miles. This is 2.25 million. And that at the ratio of London, it could hold a hundred thousand million people, which is a billion. He writes, the only city foursquare that I ever saw was Adelaide in South Australia. The ship that brought me out of the old country called in there for a couple of days and I thought it a fine city. But as you know very well, the city of Adelaide covers only one square mile. Each of the four sides is a mile long. London covers an area of 140 square miles. This city, 2.25 million. It's 15,000 times as big as London. It's 23 times as big as all of the land of New Zealand. It's 10 times as big as Germany, 10 times as big as France, 40 times as big as England. It's ever so much bigger than India. Why, it's an enormous continent in itself and it's one huge massive diamond mind-boggling it sure is big enough for the few who find the narrow way don't you think and glorified bodies don't bump into each other I don't think imagine 1500 square miles 2.25 million miles cubed streets upon streets upon streets upon streets upon streets rising up to fill the cube piled on each other as if from the tip of Florida 
to the tip of New England stacked every street the diameter of the earth and millions of golden avenues intersecting this way and this way the angel then decided that this was so interesting to measure the wall he measured the wall 72 yards according to human measurements which are also angelic measurements <laughs> it's nice to know they use the same measurements we would and so he measures a 216 foot high wall it's pretty short but a puny wall will do don't you think since nobody's going to be able to get near the place to do it any harm verse 18 the material of the wall was jasper again diamond walls you've got a huge diamond you've got some kind of some kind of pearl gates you've got other beautiful stones and now you have the wall made out of a diamond clear glass kind of thing we know as jasper the city is pure gold now in the middle of it everything inside the thing is gold light coming through everything is built gold it's built on foundations in a city that is one huge diamond walled around by diamonds only the gold is like clear glass what does it mean it's transparent gold it has all the color and beauty of gold and yet it's crystal clear so the light isn't blocked nothing is opaque in heaven nothing blocks the light the foundation stones of the city, those twelve, were adorned with every kind of precious stone. He mentions them, jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, and, and we won't go through all the current uh, names of those. Emerald, some of them you recognize, sardonic, sardius, the chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysopras, jacinth, and amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. That's what I told you earlier. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. I mean, you can't even conceive of a pearl the size of a gate. Then just try to conceive of the oyster that made it. Well, no oyster made this pearl. The street of the city was gold, but again, it was gold like transparent glass. Nothing is opaque. The pearl must be translucent because it's a gate you can go through. The gold is translucent. The light is just blazing and flashing through this incredible thing. It's an amazing thing. I, I thought about the pearl concept. Why would there be pearl gates? Well, do you know anything about a pearl? If you do, you know that a pearl basically is produced through pain. Uh, there is an irritation in the oyster, and the pain of that irritation causes the oyster to secrete something to coat whatever's in there irritating and just keeps coating it and coating it so that it doesn't feel the irritation but it it puts a smooth covering over it and the irritated oyster keeps covering and covering and covering until it produces a pearl how fitting for a gate of heaven because you enter into heaven through suffering travail redemption by blood the agony of the cross a pearl is made by a little animal that got wounded no wound no pearl we enter heaven through the pearl gates made by the wounds of Jesus Christ. Verse 22 says, I saw no temple in it. Why? For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. You don't need to go to a building to worship God. You go to God to worship God. You don't need to go to a building to exalt Christ. You go to Christ to exalt Christ. They're there, right in the middle of it, in glory, blazing light. Verse 23 then says, it doesn't have a sun, doesn't have a moon, doesn't need it, because the glory of God illumines it, and the lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be 
closed. Nothing to protect. Always in a city, they shut the gates at night. But here there's perfect security, perfect freedom. It's always day. Everybody's going to bring their glory there. Nothing is going to rival God's glory. They're going to give it all to Him. Verse 27 says, Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then chapter 22 kind of wraps it up. Showed me a river of the water of life. Clear as crystal. Coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Uh, This is amazing. Right in the middle of the throne and gushing out of it is a river. In Psalm 46, 4, it says, There is a, a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God. So in the middle of the city of God is a river. It's a gushing, beautiful, glorious river. And he says along it... Um, It comes right out the middle of its street. On either side is the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit. It has fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. Somebody always asks, well, why do they need to be healed? Nobody's going to be sick. doesn't mean the healing in the sense that they're going to take people that are sick and make them well. It means health giving or refreshing. They're there for the refreshment, for the joy, for the abundance that they provide. It isn't going to correct illness. It's just going to refresh And so there's a river, and there's trees, and there are things to eat gushing out of this incredible throne. And verse 3, I guess, sums it up. There will be no longer any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face. And his name shall be written on their foreheads. And there will be no longer any night. They shall not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and forever. You know the best part of it? Verse 4. The Lamb will be there, and they shall see His what? His face. We're going to see Christ face to face. Intimacy with Him forever. This is all mind-boggling, and this is, of course, our promised hope for the future. You want to say to people, you that reject Christ, when you're talking to unbelievers, has the devil offered you anything better than this? Take a look at what the Bible says about hell and take your choice. What a glorious promise. Where is heaven? Up. What's it like? Ezekiel gave us a shot at it. Revelation 4 gave us a look. It's as big as God. It surrounds the end of infinite created space. It has a capital city. The capital city is a diamond. The new Jerusalem through which the glory of God shines and that diamond from all its facets and all the diamond walls and pearl gates and gold Transparent gold sends the light of God's glory spattering into all the endlessness of this eternal place. And we will be there, and we will see Jesus face to face. And it is there, at that capital city, that we will make our home, and then from there traverse the endlessness of eternal heaven. That's our future. So we know what it is like, and where it is. Now next time... I want to talk about what you're going to be like when you get there. And we'll move from the place to the people who occupy it. Let's bow in prayer.
Father, we thank you for the study this morning and for uh, giving us another glimpse of heaven. And we know that John said that if we have this hope in our hearts, it will purify us. Lord, we, we know you've already made us fit for heaven. We're already fit because we have the righteousness of Christ. We're your children. You've already laid up our eternal inheritance. We've already been suited to dwell with you and to see Jesus face to face and to enjoy the un- unbelievable and indescribable wonders of this place. Thank you, Lord, that that all happened at our salvation. The transformation's already done. We're already citizens of heaven. It's now our city, and we're only pilgrims and strangers here. And we're moving every day, every hour, every moment toward the inevitable moment when you lift us from this earth to the glories of this place. Father, with that hope in our hearts, we want to hold lightly to the passing world. We want to lay up our treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves can't break in and steal. We want to purchase for ourselves eternal friends, giving our life to win those to Christ who shall forever occupy that place and whose fellowship we shall forever enjoy. We don't want to get preoccupied with the stuff down here that burns ultimately when the world goes up in flames. But we want to be occupied with the things that will last forever. Thank you for making such a place that we could dwell in. We're unworthy, but we're so grateful. And until the day that we enter into that place and see our Savior face to face, make us faithful as we live here to do on earth what is true of heaven. Help us to bring a little heaven to this world as we live the heavenly life through the power of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.